Thank you for listening to the show. I hope it inspires you and expands your view of what's possible in your journey of wealth creation. My hope is that through a repeated exposure to the ideas and the guests you will find here, your view of finance will change for the better. With that said, there's an important caveat that must be stated. The opinions you will hear on this show are just that, opinions. Please don't misconstrue any of what you're about to hear as legitimate financial advice. Do your own research and don't take anything at face value. Understand that everything you hear on this show is someone else's experience that may or may not work for you. I don't know you, I don't know your situation, so I can't tell you what to do. But I can tell you that the one goal of this podcast is to make you richer, wealthier, and ultimately more fulfilled as a human. I'm glad you're here. Please rate it, review it, share it with the people in your world that matter. And without further ado, enjoy the show. What is up? How are you? Oh, just shaking and baking, living my dream, brother. How's it going? Living the good life. Hey, everybody. This is Chris Robinette. This is my my dear friend, Chris Robinette. There's not a thing that he hasn't done. Well, there's probably some things you haven't done, I would imagine. You have uh, that I can talk a, about. Long, a long decorated history in the military Navy, correct? Yes, sir. We'll talk a little bit about that. He is a connoisseur of all things wealth, finance, ownership, growth, momentum. I really appreciate you saying that. And then uh, one of the things I want to throw in there too, because I am a fiduciary, I did want to read my disclosure real quick, just so we can have it on the audio that we can put in here, if you don't mind. Please do. Cool, Please bud. do. Hey, so uh, it's me. I'm Chris Robinette. I'm a registered representative of and offer securities, investment advisory, and financial planning services through MML Investor Services, LLC, which is a member SIPC. If you need to reach anybody for our compliance team, area code 615-309-6300. Lighthouse Planning, which is my company, is not a subsidiary of or an affiliate of MML Investor Services, nor is it an affiliate companies. Chris Robinette, me, is domiciled in the state of Tennessee. I do have an Arkansas insurance license, which is number 16385400, and a California insurance license, which is number 01805444. You didn't give me an intro. This is what happened. I'm just making up my own intro. Yeah. Uh, that's better that way. It's more fun. You spend your time helping, uh, helping democratize, I think, some of the most fascinating concepts inside of long-term investment, estate planning, just how to set yourself up for success long-term. This stuff isn't taught in school. This is one of the things I learned from the first time I met you. We went to Uncle Julio's, ate some Mexican food, and uh, you were explaining some things to me that the wealthy and the, the rich elite used as investment classes and capital vehicles. I was like, whoa, you can do that? I didn't know you could do that. Nobody taught me that in school. And I believe I actually paid you like right on the spot. I think I gave you my- You did, actually. You, you paid for lunch and you paid me for financial planning. I was like, teach me how to do this and I'll pay you anything you want. And since then, I tell people I've spent several hundred thousand dollars learning some of these these concepts. And I would say I'm I'm slowly but surely acquiring a small fraction of the insight that you have just because you do this full time. And uh, you're kind of on my top three list go to anytime I need to have a question answered. So welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. And you look amazing, by the way. Thanks, brother. No, I appreciate that. And uh, thanks for having me on. Like anytime I can do anything to help just kind of impart some wisdom, give some opinions and point people in the right direction. Uh, really yeah. look forward to the chance to do it. I have a really important question. Dave Ramsey says that you should not get whole life insurance. And I would like for you to tell me why that is not true. Well, I'm seeing how I live here in middle Tennessee and Dave is probably like that direction about six miles. Uh, even though his office used to be this direction about two miles. 
You know, I understand a lot of times where, you know, people come from and what you should and shouldn't do. And that's, I think that's what makes it the hardest when people try to cookie cutter. You know, he's got what, 20, 30 million audience a week. And so it's kind of hard when you're telling one person to do one thing and then the other 29 million not to do it. And so, you know, the situation Dave's coming from, I think he's a lot more focused on the debt management and getting people out of debt. So like when I was in the Navy, I actually taught his financial peace university for four years to young sailors. Cause are you serious? Yeah. For four years, dude. Wow, um, you're a Cause you would see these sailors making next to no money and they'd be buying brand new Dodge challengers at 38% interest because the car lot wouldn't tell them any better. And so, you know, I mean, I think they do a lot of good helping people get out of debt. And so when you're having to look at what makes sense and what doesn't term insurance is just vastly more cost efficient than whole life is, but term insurance is only going to cover a finite period of time. You know, you can get annual renewable 10 year, 20 year, 30 year kind of term. But you look at something like whole life, like you're mentioning, that's literally going to cover you for your entire lifetime. So you could still have the bill that you pay for forever, or you could short pay it 20 years, 15, 10 years, things like that. And so I think Dave just looks at that, the value cost between what it is versus a lot of these lower income families that are starting to make it and are starting to grow what they're doing and just says, hey, for the cost of what you're doing, just focus on term. But I'm highly confident that as a lot of his followers probably grow and become debt free and start looking at other vehicles, I'm pretty sure there's probably a chunk of them that actually shift into acquiring some form of permanent insurance because that's the only legacy play you really have is having permanent insurance when you start talking estate planning, when you start talking multi-generational wealth. Because I don't know about you, but I'm really not trying to off any of my friends in the next 15 to 20 years to capitalize on their term insurance. So I'd rather have a much smaller whole life and then have it in place and know it'll be there because the utility of wealth just seems to grow better. So how does it actually work? Because I know that there's a lot of people, I get this question all the time. And if I get this question, I'm sure you get this question where it's like, how does whole life actually work? Because people have literally, it's almost like they've never even given it a shot or looked into it or researched it because they've been told that it's not a good idea. Structurally, how's the vehicle differ from term insurance? Yeah. So structurally speaking, there's two types of actual actuarial chassis. So actuarial cost is what's associated with the mortality of someone actually dying, what the insurance company would have to carry for the weight, you know, what they have for admin, what they have for expenses and everything like that. So if you take someone all the way down to the day they're born, we can agree that the mortality rate is very low, but it's still greater than zero because there's a chance you could die at birth. And then as you proceed across the age spectrum, as you get older and older, there becomes an inflection point where you're more likely to die than you are to live through the next year. And so, you know, average mortality is what, 85 for men and 87 for women. So as you're approaching closer and closer to that area of the curve, the actuarial cost of one more year of insuring you exponentially increases, kind of like the the growth of a hockey stick. And so if you take a 20-year term from 25 to 45, you're covering a smaller, you're covering like a smaller range. But then from 45 to 65, you have a much higher piece of the range that you're having to cover for the same gambit. And so that's why if you take out term at 25 and then you take out a new one at 45, it may be six to eight times the cost of what you spend at 25 just because of the actuarial curve. Plus the company still has admin costs, plus they have to make a profit because they're not all nonprofits. And so they have to build a buffer in there. Whereas whole life basically looks at your mortality range, which most of these policies are written until 95 or 100. 
And they look at your entire mortality curve all the way back until whatever age you are today. So that same 25-year-old. And they would say, hey, let's take that entire curve that you're on and flatten the entire thing out and say, hey, the chances of you dying at 25 is a lot lower than it is at 65. But we're going to put a steady curve. So now when you're 75 or 80, you have the exact same mortality costs associated with what you did at 25. So you actually can fund cash into the policy early, whereas in later in the life, the policy is actually carrying more of the risk. However, you still have coverage. And so when you're planning on a client living till 85 or 90 or 95 years old, you want to have some form of insurance in there so that you know you have a piece of the legacy hand down to clients. And so you can reduce pay these whole life policies, though. So instead of paying for it until you die, you can pay for it till you're 65. Or you can do a 20 pay, just pay for 20 years or pay for 10 years. And so all that's going to do is take the entire 65-year actuarial window and just chunk it down into 10 years. It's slightly more expensive, but at year 11 on a 10-year, the mortality expenses go to zero. And so now the policy is just paying a dividend that's associated with whatever carrier you replace it with. And then you have no more expense cost inside of it. Is that the main difference between... And I know this is custom for each individual, but we have we have several policies together. And the main difference between the way mine are set up and IBC is IBC infinite banking. Is that where you pay forever or are there infinite banking concept policies that are fixed 10 pay, 12 pay? Like what's the main difference between just a whole life policy and an IBC? Yeah. So most IBC based policies are written on a like pay till 100 type chassis because you have to have, there's an X dollar premium that's paid in per the amount of death benefit. And so in order to stick extra cash into these policies, so the cash is called paid up additions or additional life insurance riders. In order to stick that actual cash into the policy, you have to have so much of a base policy written. And so that base can carry a lot more per death benefit the longer the policy is created to run. And so if you have a 10-year window, most policies are going to be butting up right against the max amount of cost you can spend on it, that you don't have room for that extra dump in. And a lot of these infinite banking concepts are trying to show you how to generate an extra $50,000, $100,000, you know, $200,000 of cash dumped into this policy so you have the ability to start borrowing from said policy for other avenues of things that you want to do outside of the insurance world. So. That's kind of the stance on how in the infinite banking world looks at it. I personally try not to have clients put money in the policy they're going to want within the next 12 months because the life insurance isn't an investment vehicle. It is literally life insurance. So as an insurance vehicle, you're still establishing a contract between the insured or the owner for the insured and the insurance company. So with that, you're going to want that coverage to still, you know, basically be there. And so you don't want to just throw 200000 in and then yank it back out 30 days later because, you know, something could happen. So I try personally not to write policies too much like that. I'd rather the cash be in there for one year, three year, five year, 10 years before they start using it and focus it more long term. But to each their own, there's a lot of people that focus on different ways to do it. So can you pull money back with IBC as well? Yes, yeah, it's, it's literally the same kind of concept. So most IBC type practitioners and policies are setting them up so that you can pull the money back out within 30 to 60 days 
we're typically at least in the first 90 days. And like I said, personally, since we're coming from financial planning and we're looking at multiple avenues of things for the clients to be doing, I just prefer not to dump excess of cash in the whole life that we're going to just take back out 30 days later. I'd rather have it sit in the policy and season and marinate for all intents and purposes and continue to grow. And then maybe you're two years, three years in, and then you've dumped an extra 100000 in each year for three years. And so you're sitting on two fifty, three hundred, four hundred thousand of cash value in that policy. And now if you want to use it to go borrow and get a car, if you want to use it to go buy a house, if you want to go use it for other avenues of things, you have the opportunity to do it. But I want to look at that at the long-term plan of how you want to do it, not just a, hey, put it in, pull it back out a month later. I just think it starts to overlap too much risk for clients. Gotcha. Okay. One of the things that people ask me too is that there's a difference between the guaranteed rate of return and then what's the second? It's the like, non-guaranteed rate of return? Yeah. Like what? what's... <laughs> that was, thanks for that. Uh, guaranteed and non-guaranteed. What's the difference? How does that get determined in your forecasting and your riders? Yeah. So... Guaranteed is basically the dollar amount that the company is willing to pay no matter what happens. So the company could lose $28 billion that year for some adverse reason, and they're still going to pay 4% to that policy. You know, they're still going to pay 2.5%. That guaranteed percentage is actually established in the product. So it doesn't vary. So if you set up a product 10 years ago, your guarantee may be 4.5%, 5%. You set up a product today, it could be anywhere from 2 to 4% as the minimum guaranteed payout that's in the policy. With the payout, there's usually no additional cash if you're only getting paid out the guarantees because you're not getting the dividend. The dividend is what creates, you know, say the dividend pays out $10,000, for example. The dividend, if it's being resent into the policy to buy paid up additions, is what buys additional life insurance inside of that policy. Because you take that $10,000 and you say, hey, just leave it in there. Buy additional life insurance with it for me today. And then now you're, say you had a million dollar policy. Your now million dollar policy may be a million fifteen thousand. You know, it just depends on age and how long they've had it and what they're doing with it. But you can also take the cash back from the policy. You know, you could have that dividend just issued to you as a check each year. And the policy just keeps growing as it is. You can have the dividend pay, reduce the premium. So, you know, say you're getting a... a year premium with a $10,000 dividend, you could have that $10,000 go towards the premium. So really, you just have a $20,000 bill that year. And so that's the dividend. And the dividends basically looks at the mortality and actuarial tables of the company. And they say, hey, we planned on spending this much on the mortality table. If they spend less than they planned on, that's a positive. So that's excess of cash, which goes towards the dividend. If expenses are better than they thought they would be, if people are living longer than they thought they would, like there's just, we kind of call it like a little black box because you don't, every carrier is different on what they look at and how they weight and value different things. But that's what makes up the excess of contribution. So like you see carrier like Northwestern Mutual, I think did like a $5.7 billion dividend announcement for this year. But they have a multitude of policies because they're mutual. So their dividend pays out to all their shareholders, which are the policyholders. So because of that, even with a massive dividend, you know, they're still paying, I think, 5% this year, which is still great. But if their base is three and a half, they would have paid a 1.5% bonus on top of that effectively is kind of like a way to look at that. Just so everybody knows, Chris has an article on the Levels of Wealth blog. So if you go to blog.levelsofwealth.com, you can see an article there, whole life companies and how to choose them. And uh, don't worry, it doesn't have anything 
doesn't have anything that's advice giving in it. It just is a demonstration of the different mutual companies, how they pay, all of those things. One of the most fascinating use cases for whole life insurance, because I, I do think that it's, it's obviously custom. It's case by case. You know, not everybody should do this, that, or the other. It all comes down to your situation. Uh, but when you look at the rich and wealthy and the ultra wealthy, they prioritize capital preservation above almost everything else. They're not wanting to move backwards. And I'm starting to understand that. I'm getting into the, I would, I would say I'm, I'm relatively poor compared to a group of people and I'm relatively rich compared to a different group of people. But in my mind, I want to continue growing. And I'm learning to put money into these policies. And now I'm storing up a cash value where like I could call you today. I could say, hey, give me a check for $150,000. There's cash value in the policy. And then how that would work is I would get a check in the next 24 hours or a wire transfer or whatever that would be paying my cash value in the policy back out to me. I would pay a cost of capital for that, but I would still earn the dividend on the original sum of money. And so people don't understand this in posts and stuff. It's like the cost of capital is a positive yield. Because you're earning a dividend that is higher than the cost of capital that you're pulling back out. And so I was telling somebody the other day, I was like, talk about emergency funds and you need to have some money. Put your emergency fund in your whole life policy. And that way it's accessible. It's liquid. And I wasn't giving a financial advice. I was telling what I was doing. Is it too good to be true? Like at a certain point, this is for you, Chris. Like, do you find people being like, wait, are you serious? And then you have to kind of show them like how this has been around for 100 years. And yes, this is not too good to be true. You can do this as well. Like, do you hit belief issues like that? Oh, yeah, all the time. There's some carriers out there, you know, mutual life insurance carriers out there that are 160 something years into paying a dividend, you know, so they tell you the dividends are not guaranteed because they're not They They literally will never guarantee a dividend, nor should they, because they still run as a business. And if they have a bad year, they reserve the right to only pay the guaranteed minimum that's associated with the policy. But you can look at some of these carriers that have been through the Civil War. They've been through World War I, World War II, 9-11, and they all still paid a dividend. So, I mean, I feel highly comfortable, you know, comfortable having the discussion with clients saying, you're most likely going to get a dividend, even though you may not. Most likely you are. And so when you factor that into what you're looking at, a lot of clients, you know, like I, I was talking to my buddy Dave, um, and he's buying a lot of land right now. And every time he goes to buy land, he says he's looking for what it's going to do for the third and fourth generation, not for what it's going to do for his kids. He's, he's buying land specifically for his grandkids. And so when we talked about life insurance that he put in place, he said he wasn't worried what his kids are going to get because he wants to work in the business with his kids, but he doesn't know if he'll ever work in the business with his grandkids. And so he wants to make sure that the family assets are basically combined in the one pot together. And he loves the idea of having the legacy planning from the life insurance. And kind of to the arbitrage that you spoke on, not every policy is going to have an arbitrage. So it's it's hard to assume that because there's adjustable rate interest, there's fixed rate interest. So, I mean, there's some carriers we'll run into that are loaning money out. Their interest rate could be six, seven, eight percent. Well, if their dividend is lower than that, you're technically going to have an opportunity cost and owe money into the policy. Um, there's other carriers that are loaning money right now at four or five percent that are still paying five and a half, six percent interest rates. And so you'll have that positive arbitrage like you're speaking of. So it's really going to be carrier dependent. And so kind of like what we, you talked about on that blog post, you know, so I just got that from topholelife.com when we were like looking for different carriers and things out there. And they're a really nice independent blog 
that talks about the different top whole life companies around the around the uh, country and stuff like that. So, you know, I recommend when people are shopping different companies that they're just confused. Like it's a great resource that your agent isn't necessarily going to tell you what to or not to do. But when you look at it, one of the things to look at is there's direct recognition and there's non-direct recognition. So even in the types of different carriers, if you're just sticking to mutual carriers, if you are a directly recognized carrier and you want to borrow this money like you speak of, and there's 500000 in cash value and you pull 100000 out, you go to 400000 of cash value. So your dividend and crediting is only going to be to that $400,000. In a non-direct recognition type policy, you're actually loaning against the policy, not from the policy. So the $500,000, you'll take a $100,000 loan from the insurance carrier, but the dividend will still be paying on the $500,000. So in that instance to what you're talking about, and even more so like how we set yours up, we looked at mutual carriers that are non-direct recognition. So if you did want to borrow for things like that, you have that opportunity in there. Is the return coming from like you know, the, the non-guaranteed return, which is higher than the guaranteed, is that coming from like the different companies take their returns from the S&P or from the market or like how do they come up with that figure? It's all the little black box on how the company makes money that year. And so some carriers, they may be an insurance carrier, but they'll have an investment subsidiary arm. And so if their subsidiary company for the investments makes money, then the carrier makes money and they pass the profits on to the shareholders. Um, same thing. Like I've seen insurance companies fund apartment complexes. I've seen them buy massive skyscrapers and things like that, doing real estate deals, buying hotel chains, like a lot of things like that that create cash flow and that create passive income for the parent company. And so as all those profits are then rolled into the parent company, the parent company then divvies out a portion of all those profits out to the shareholders. So even in a really low interest rate environment, as we've been in for the last several years, they're not tied to all their money just being stored in, you know, government bonds or municipal bonds and things like that. They, they have real estate holdings. They have other investment holdings. They have, you know, investment arms and just other, you know, special projects that they're doing that creates wealth for the carrier and that thus creates profits and the profits are what are they then flowed through to the uh, insured. Would you say that's the main difference between like an IUL and a whole life policy is IUL is tied to the market where the whole life is kind of like a profit share on the actual company? That's probably an easy way to put it. You know, any like on that universal life chassis, you know, I mean, those have only really been around for 40, 50 years because a lot of them were created, you know, the IUL, VUL, stuff like that in the 70s, 80s, 90s in the higher interest rate uh, world that we're in and then tied to the stock market. And so you didn't really have a lot of S&P investing in the 1800s. So when Whole Life was created, it was created to have the guarantees on the insurance company and run as insurance. IULs and VULs are still insurance. You're still establishing a contract with a carrier. Um, but now they're transferring some of the risk from the actual carrier to the insured who's getting the policy by their saying, hey, we're going to set a target that we expect this policy to achieve. It'll have a floor, so it won't go below zero, but it may have a cap. So, you know, you could have the market do 30% one year, and it may cap at 13 or 15%, so you don't capture the full remaining upside. And so it kind of just depends on the risk tolerance of the client and who wants to buy these policies, because they can overfund faster. They can have more cash in there sooner, but they're still tied to the actual term insurance chassis that we talked about, that hockey stick that's always going up versus a flat 
like whole life is. And so later on in life, if there's a ton of cash inside the policy, the IUL and the VUL will perform fine. But if you start taking retirement supplements or you're pulling money out of it, you're going to be reestablishing the risk that the death benefit's covering. And then that may be at a higher rate beyond what the target was set for. And so that can kind of throw some people for a loop when you're 75 years old and you've been funding it for 30 years and all of a sudden you have a $90,000 capital call or you have to get rid of it. So it's not nearly as bad as they used to be. But I'm still not a fan of doing it that way. I'd rather my clients not have any bills in retirement if we can help it. And so I just choose the right whole life more than anything because we can kind of control those things and just live with the guarantees and let them invest other assets into other assets like the stock market or straight into the S&P directly instead of through a policy or if they want to do real estate or, you know, there's other avenues out there. Yeah. Hey, off topic, when are you going to get an electric vehicle? Uh, I don't know. I looked at buying a Tesla, but then they keep setting themselves on fire every time. And I think it's because I Googled it one time. And so now I just oh, keep getting retargeted. On. Come on. Check Nissan, Nissan. I just got this alert from market movers. They're planning to spend 2 trillion yen, 17 and a half billion dollars over the next five years to accelerate their switch to electric vehicles and catch up to competition. That's crazy. $18 billion. That is pretty awesome. Well, I saw Ford, you know, Ford's doing a ton in the electronic vehicle space too. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see if there's a, you know, take the, take the lead from GM and run a lot more down that, especially with their trucks. Yeah, definitely. Do you feel like we're catching up to China or is China going to pull away? Like you're really tuned into that stuff. You worried about it? You not worried about it? I'm not, you know, coming, coming from 11 years in the Navy, you know, I've always, you know, you recognize places like China and Russia, superpowers, England, France, Germany, all those different places. You know, they have different ways that they go about running their country. They have different ways that they look at imports and exports and tariffs and stuff like that. And, you know, ultimately, I think everything kind of flows on a pendulum. So where one day it may be super one direction, the other day it'll kind of be the other. But eventually all pendulums slow down and kind of hang somewhere in the middle. So, I feel like the race in the economic world between, you know, like take U.S. and China, for example. Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of swinging back and forth. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, I think there's going to be a lot more coming together eventually and having a lot more of a concise, unitary, like, goals or where we're all going. But it'd also be nice if the U.S. kind of brought some stuff back to the U.S. and didn't rely on everything to be shipped back here. It's a hard stance when you got to weigh profits versus accessibility versus streamlining your business too. What would you say to me if I wanted to put 90% of my net worth in Bitcoin? Uh, I tell you, you have the cash flow to support it, bud. So if that's really what you want to do, go right ahead. I mean, I've been seeing the charts. I've been seeing them. It looks like if we're going to mirror 2017, 2019, it's about to explode. They're saying 200K before the next two months are up. But anyways, I just wanted to hear what your answer was on that. Don't get me wrong. Like I would, I would love to see you know, some of these cryptocurrencies turn into more stable currencies, especially when you look at, you know, exchange rates, like you mentioned with the, with the yuan versus the US dollar, you know, now you have an international coin. So technically you could take Bitcoin from the US and spend Bitcoin in France and it's still the exact same Bitcoin. So, I mean, I think there's a lot of utility to it. I think it's just a, 
a, a wild, wild west still of how people are trying to regulate it and reel it in and things like that. So until there's more regulation and more countries that kind of buy in on the whole digital currency thing, I just think there's going to be a lot of volatility and fluctuation. And so just like anything, I don't chase a ton of risk or a lot of speculation in my life. You obviously like risk and speculation. So whatever makes you happy, bud. I just want to be on the cutting edge. The, the thing I love about you, though, is I think you're very you're very data driven in your exposure. At least this is from my experience, like your choice of exposure for me is a little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit over there and having a nice bedrock that is going to be like your lifelong never going to lose. Another way to say that is I think you're probably well rounded, more well rounded than I am. Because when we got into real estate, it was like, okay, 90% of my stuff was in real estate. And now it's like, I want to put everything into Bitcoin. And you're like, sometimes if you guys were to see the conversations me and Chris have behind the scenes, Chris is just like, okay, this is a slowdown. Like, don't do anything right now. Let's build a thesis and then go from there. And I'm like, what's a thesis? No, I'm not really. Uh, but it's, it's true. It's kind of like a hypothesis. It's a hypothesis. So if this was to do this, then what would come from it? Hundred, hundred percent. And you're not a one trick pony either. You're kind of developing a little bit of a reputation for whole life uh, and, and just insurance in general as a reputable a vehicle for capital storage in, in an asset class. But you're also, uh, you do a lot of financial planning for clients. You are fiduciarily responsible for their well-being, which I spring up all the time just because, uh, you know, no, I'm just kidding. You don't need reminders. How did you get into the game of financial planning? Obviously coming from the Navy, uh, we've talked about this several times, but I think it's a really good story because it kind of shares why you do what you do. It's not just for the money. There's a lot of other things you could do for money, but maybe you could share that story real quick so people can hear it. Yeah, sure. I guess the the cliff notes, uh, when I was at the Naval Academy, I was big into wanting to go to mergers and acquisitions. And I was actually talking to some big firms on Wall Street about a potential job when I rolled out of the Navy. And my mom actually developed cancer when I was in college. And they gave her, you know, six to 12 months to live. And so it was kind of like a kind of eye opening, like, hey, there's all your stuff in place. There's all your trust set up that, you know, where's everything? Wow, you, you probably should have had some more life insurance and just random things that you didn't really think about that I was learning through college. And I was learning through my program that actually shifted my focus to take an honors track at the Naval Academy for deeper into economics. And so when I was actually off Station in Hawaii, our ship was heading to Iraq in 2005 to support OEF, OIF, and forces in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so as we're kind of, I don't know, 300-ish miles off the coast of Thailand, uh, heading to the Indian Ocean, we got the AMCROSS message that my mom had passed away. So we we're kind of dealing with things with satellite phones and emails and trying to coordinate stuff with my grandparents and the trustees and, you know, the CPA that we had was our trustee at the time and the estate planning attorney on just everything that needed to happen and kind of go through it. And then as we kind of got, once I got back uh, to the States and we were kind of just digging through the whole estate, there was a lot of stuff that should have been protected from probate that really wasn't. Um, there were some things that were set up that weren't clearly defined how they were set up. So they went one way when they really should have probably gone the other way, but it was kind of up to, up to everyone's interpretation on what made the most sense or not. So, you know, I was really kind of, this is going bummed out. This is the good word. I was really bummed out with how it kind of played out for my sister and I. And so I kind of decided that I didn't want to do mergers and acquisitions anymore. I wanted to do actual personal financial planning so that clients that I work with, you know, that I want to build a 30 to 40 year relationship with if something happens to them earlier in life, because my mom was 46. So if something happens to them earlier in life, 
their family won't go through the stuff that my sister and I had to deal through when I was 23 and she was 19. And so finished my MBA at Oklahoma, actually got recruited to my firm out here in Nashville where I live now and uh, been here for 10 years doing it. And I think it's great because there's there's just so many ways that you can help somebody and so many ways you can kind of customize an individual plan for each person that you deal with. So I think coming from the nuclear engineering world where, you know, I got to be super introverted. Now I get to be really extroverted and help literally build and grow legacies for people on how they want to do it. So I think that's what I enjoy a ton out of the job. So if whole life makes sense, great. If crypto makes sense, great. If paying down your debt first makes sense, great. Let's just figure out what makes the most sense for the clients and then help. As I like to tell you all the time, help guard your blind spots, you know, and make sure you're not overwhelmingly diving off in any one direction and you're kind of building a solid base and platform to grow from, you know. Yep, 100%. Well, I think you're one of the most honest and integrous people that I've met. And so thank you for being who you are. If people want to connect with you just to have a conversation, levelsofwealth.com slash insurance, that'll take them to your booking page. Uh, we might have to come back in and chop that off. Just keep me posted on the level of the level of overwhelm you have uh, from that. Or you might have to build a team. Look at that. And then you're in my wheelhouse now, oh, we baby. We have a team, bud. We have a team. Might need a bigger team. We got, we got three planners now. Three okay, planners. Even more. We're going to keep Look going. that, man. Appreciate you having me on here, bud. That was, was amazing. Awesome. Anything else you want to say before we wrap up? No, I appreciate you having me on. Look forward to catching up more as you have different clients that have different questions and things they want to learn and kind of building and growing this together. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you on again. I want to talk about the, uh, the arms race with technology and how the United States is losing. <laughs> uh, we didn't have a chance to get into that, but next time, next time. Cool. All right. Thank you so much, my friends. Talk soon. See ya.